So they get together, they're having this discussion, uh, you know, and I don't know if it becomes apparent to Joseph, but he makes it pretty clear early on that, hey, in this council, we're all going to say what we actually think, right? Wait, 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 what? I've never heard this in a church meeting. Well, exactly. That's exactly the whole point, right? I mean, I think all of us who are in, who, who've ever been in a ward council or any, if you've ever been in any council at all in the church, at least for me, so I'm not going to indict everybody. I'm going to indict myself and then everyone can say, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I mean, I know that when I'm on a ward council, I rarely say exactly what I'm thinking in the meeting. In fact, I'm spending most of my time wanting to get out of the meeting and then the <laughs> the other half of the time uh wanting to not upset someone in the meeting right okay. so i'll hear someone say you know what this is what we're going to do as an elders quorum and i'll be like uh, in my mind i'm thinking that's you 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 want to you want to have a dance a dance competition for the for the war oh, that's the worst idea i've ever heard in my life but but in my in my mind I'm saying that out loud I'm saying like okay yeah what can I do to help? It is time for another episode of the Cultural Hall visiting today with Garrett Dirkmott. Mott. I love that last name by the way. Uh, it, this is an interview long long coming. Uh, I want to say that I um that I got your telephone number like two years ago. From <laughs> from uh, Lisa, the producer of John, by the way, and Hank Smith's podcast. That probably I, sounds about right. I did her a party in in this weird, quirky Provo neighborhood where everyone is a doctor and <laughs> they all work at BYU, and it's it, I, just odd. And she's like, you know who you need to visit with? And I said, who? She said, Garrett Dirkmott which by the way, I'm going to continue to do that with your name. And okay. then we connected and then we said, yeah, let's do it. And then we didn't because that's the kind of ADHD people we are. Finally, we're sitting and doing this. Thank you for being here in the cultural hall. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad you persisted. Well, I had to, uh, you know, you, you do a million things within the church that, you know, you asked prior to us chatting, like, you know, what, what would you like to talk about? And it it is hard for me when, uh, when you have so many different uh, avenues that we could talk about, uh, for instance, right, you worked for the church history department uh, with the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and yep. particularly you have a, a great deal of knowledge about the Council of Fifty, which I find to be a fascinating, fascinating subject that I think some people go, I don't even know what that is. Why does he find that so fascinating? So there's everything of that. Uh, as I understand it, you spent some time overseas. Am I remembering that correctly? Um, so I haven't spent time overseas as far as living there. I've done research and things like that overseas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Doing all so that kind of stuff. The reason why you're thinking that is twice, somehow twice, when we were trying to set this up, you contacted me and twice I was out of the country. So I'm not okay. always out of the country, okay. but I was doing, uh, I think I was doing research at the, the British library one time. And so, I mean, yeah, there was, there've been a couple of times you've tried and I was out of the country. And now uh, you work for the Brigham Young University, and yes. uh, you also do a podcast um, with a, a buddy of yours, and uh, and maybe we start there okay. and chat a little bit about that podcast. Tell people what it is and 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 what you guys do. Okay, well, it's called the Standard of Truth. Um, Standard of Truth podcast is 
something that uh, I, we have another friend. We have, you know, surprisingly, I have more than one friend. This is my my second that, friend. That is now. surprising. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm hopeful that by the time we're done with this interview, you can be my third friend. I'm really okay. just, I'm slowly trying to branch out the number of friends. Uh, I used to live up in 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 Layton in in their ward. These two guys, Layton, well, Utah, uh, north of Salt Lake. If people don't know, yes, the, if you're wondering, the, the landscape yeah. of Utah. I live now down in Spanish Fork, so which is south, south of Salt Lake, <laughs> yeah, south of Provo, you know, even. And um, we we when we lived up there, it was very back in the very early days of podcasting. There were not very many people podcasting back then, and um, one of our friends uh, who was in the high council at the time. He was like, you know what? I, I listen to these podcasts all the time. You really should just do a church history podcast. And I, and I was like, I, I first of all, no. And then second of all, <laughs> I, I'm not, no one's going to want to listen to anything I have to say. So, I mean, that's ridiculous. What you think someone's going to down? I mean, it sounds weird to talk about it now. It's kind of like talking about, uh, I was trying to explain to my kids that when phones first came out with the ability to text, mm -hmm. that we thought it was stupid. Yes, I uh, remember <laughs> Wait, so you wait, so you you text? Yeah. I, I'll I'll do you one better. When I got back from uh my religiously affiliated vacation and cell phones had hit while I was gone, yeah. I wanted a pager. I remember going to a cell phone store and saying, No, 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 I don't I don't need to talk to people. I just need like a pager like I had before. Can I do that? And they're like, no one is doing that anymore. If you were to show a pager to a kid today, they would think it was telling you you need more insulin. That's what they would be like. Oh, this must be a warning for your for your diabetes. That there's something like that. But anyway, so I I I it was brand new, and he and he really tried. He's like, no, you, you, it's this great thing. You know, download it. Da, 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 da. And I never did. And and I I moved away. Well, after I moved away and came to BYU and you know did a bunch of other things, um, he became a bishop. And he was dealing with all kinds of church history questions and things mm. like that. And so he was like, you really need to do this. I'm like, man, I'm so busy. I've got so much stuff going on. I just, I just don't, I, it's not me, you know? And uh, well, so then he paid uh, a voiceover actor to create the introduction to the podcast. Mm -hmm. He paid an artist for the art of the podcast and then sent it to me and said, now, if you don't record it, you'll have wasted all of my money. <laughs> so then we, so we did it. So, so, so as a couple of, you know, we're in our third season now. So it's, you know, two and a half, uh, three years ago that we were doing that. And, um, you know, we, what we do is it's me and my best friend, uh, my best friend, Richard LaDuke. Uh, he, uh, our ongoing joke on the uh, show is that he doesn't yet have his PhD. He's, he's a, he's a business guy. He teaches uh, the Masters of Business Development uh, classes at the University of Utah, the, the graduate classes there. So he has his MBA, but he's almost got his PhD from uh, Oklahoma State University. And so, you know, he's he's a highly intelligent, highly educated Latter-day Saint, mm -hmm. but not in church history. Right. And so it kind of provides, you know, first of all, we just we like to have fun you know we're sure. best friends Two we love friends. talking it's an opportunity to connect with a buddy of yours so exactly that yeah. interest yeah i don't i don't think i'd be doing this if it wasn't with him you know because right. it's fun but we'll take you know we have people email in and they'll say hey you know i heard that joseph smith taught that you know the 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 the, the, the telestial kingdom so great that if you knew what it was like you'd kill yourself to get there is that true mm -hmm. and so what we'll do is we'll go through we'll talk about the background of it we'll go through the sources that people have you know where that comes from we go back to the original source okay the re the person who originally said this was x 
and then it got reprinted here. And the reason why you know about it is because it was published here and here and here. Mm -hmm. And then, and then to help kind of provide some kind of historical context and, you know, some things like that are not super important. Maybe other things like how was the book of Mormon translated? Um, you know, what are, uh, what about, uh, you know, certain accusations and accusations against Joseph Smith, things like mm -hmm. that. So we, we really do uh, thrive off of people emailing in and asking questions. We have, we have an ongoing joke though. And that is um, we're not going to talk about polygamy. So, so, you know, it, all of the non-polygamy emails now we have actually talked about it, you know, maybe a dozen times, but sure. if it, plural marriage is such a, it's such a complicated topic that changes so rapidly over the course of time that it actually doesn't lend itself very well to a podcast. Sure. If someone listens to a podcast and thinks they know everything there is to know about plural marriage, someone's selling them something uh, mm -hmm. that they, mm -hmm. they don't really know. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we keep our ongoing joke as we'll eventually get to it anyway, but yeah. So it's, it's uh, available on Apple and then on Spotify or, you know, Amazon, whatever uh, uh, standard or true podcast. And it's a it's a great listen. I can give the uh, endorsement as far as that goes. Uh, you guys do such a great job, and you can tell the friendship level level of you guys. I mean, it's fun to be able to to be that listening ear, almost in in some situations where it's like, do you guys know that I'm listening too? Like, do they remember that I'm you know that I'm a, a part of this as well? I'm glad to hear you say that because occasionally we have people uh, who will uh, email in and say, uh, I don't like the fact that you're sometimes silly. I want you to only quote sources and immediately get to the story. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so we do, we do. Uh, I mean, you've mentioned that you've listened to the cultural hall a couple of times. You yeah. probably have listened to interviews, but we do um, news articles. And sometimes because I'm catching up with friends, I say, you know, what's new and significant. Right. And we spend 10 to 15 minutes, you know, you know, what's this? And I try and relate it to some sort of gospel thing or like living in the modern age as we, you know, those kind of things. Uh, uh, but it, in, it oftentimes is just catching up with that individual. And my wife will say things like, listen, if you're doing the news, chat about the news. Don't don't chat about your life and go into the this and the this. If it's a news, if you're calling it a news episode, do news. Yeah. Well, I mean, I heard a, a radio uh, comedian once say, there's no accounting for taste. You know, the reality is, you, you can't just, you can't try to, to please everybody because you just can't, you know? And if, mm -hmm. if someone's looking for a podcast that's very stoic and very serious and, 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 you know, and there's not, you know, if one person laughs, they, they shut the whole thing down and they pull it off of Apple so that no one could ever hear that. Mm -hmm. um, well, there are plenty of podcasts like that. Mm -hmm. um, like we say in our introduction, the, the point is we want to address these issues uh, from the perspective of expertise with, mm -hmm. with my, my, my PhD in history with, um, a faithfulness. I mean, the, the, we are, 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 are believers ourselves. And we are, we're talking to a community of believers. We, we welcome people who aren't to listen, but you know, I'm, and, and we do have some that listen and, and right. like listening. Um, and, and that also through, you know, with humor, I mean, we, we like to be a little lighthearted and, and I think we're very, very, very serious at times. And, you know, uh, at other times we're not. So, I mean, that's a, that's a reality, but um, I, I, I was excited to come on, uh, on your podcast for the very reason that it was, uh, it was more laid back like mine than it was uh, perhaps some others. <laughs> well, interesting. Cause now I'd like to talk about polygamy with you. Okay, well, we just got to get right into it. <laughs>
a couple things that I want to sort of pick up as we, as we go around this uh, standard of truth. I, I don't know that everyone knows that that's a nod to um, I, I don't know if that's a particular sermon, but w- on my mission, we memorized the standard of truth um, by yep. Joseph Smith. Do you have that memorized? Can you quote it, sir? Wow, probably not anymore. Uh, but yeah, the standard of truth is is a, a the reference is the uh, uh, the reference to Joseph Smith's publication in the in the Wentworth letter that the standard of truth has been erected. No one held hand can stop the work from progressing. Right, and persecutions and, may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, and calumny may defame. We did this every single mission okay. meeting. Yeah, we were not as faithful about doing it. We did do it at times in my mission, but we didn't do it for every meeting. But I have talked to people who like they did it as companionships every day. Oh yeah, every morning for companionship study. Well, then it probably led to inventory. Uh, <laughs> that they 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 quoted uh, the standard of truth, and so that's where we took the title from. Now, after we had already selected that as the title. The church then named the first saints volume the standard of truth, and so it was like, well, great. Now it looks like we're just trying to copy that, but. I can show you the dates on it. Sure, worry not. Every Come Follow Me podcast (laughs) named it after Come Follow Me. And thank you for not being a Come Follow Me podcast. That's only minor amounts of shade on the Come Follow Me podcast. In fact, it's not even shade on that. It's it's two parts. I digress, but here we go. Uh, Where where the the church is like, let's make it uh, home-centered and really, you know, dive into this yourself. And we're like, cool, who's going to teach us how to do that? That's what I think is so hilarious about that. And that like every marketing person was like, okay, a new thing, everybody on board. And then the next day, there were 25 different elements of a Come Follow Me podcast. If it helps you understand, I think it's great. If it increases your faith, I also think that's great. Both of those things have occurred with my listening and incorporating some of that into my life. But I just think it's so funny where we're like, home-centered, who's going to teach me about that? That, that is pretty funny. Home-centered, I, I need to have someone give me some cliff notes then. Yeah. Well, and it feels it feels it feels sort of two-sided where it's like, and here is a church product to teach you this Come Follow Me. I know it's good intentions. Everyone come at me. That's fine. The other thing that I, uh, well, actually, let me go back a little bit. So uh, short of maybe articles of faith and, um, uh, and maybe one or two other things, I, I, the standard of truth is such a powerful, like quotation uh, document, whatever we want to call it. I I think it, it, it maybe is something that is underserved uh, in, in today's church, we mentioned you probably served a mission around the turn of the millennia. Is that about? I sure did. I was, I was in, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin when it all went down. Yeah. Cleveland, Ohio is where I was. So we were literally the same time. Very close. And if people are wondering, it was before they raised the bar. Otherwise neither (laughs) of us would have been able to go. Oh, the bar was so low. Yeah. Uh, you want to go? Sure. We'll figure out a way to get you out there. Um, but it is, it is uh, all jokes aside, such a powerful like statement about the gospel, about the church. I, ju- I just think it's brilliantly named um, um, by you guys. The other thing that I would that I would say, uh, and this is just to establish uh, my religiosity so that I can be on the same team as you. I happen to, uh, if people are watching the video, whether they're Patreon Saints of the Cultural Hall or they happen to be checking us out on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash the cultural hall they'll notice that in your backdrop you have the history of the church 
the uh, the old volumes, not the original, but the uh, reprint that Deseret Book did a few years ago. I happen to be able to tell that that's what it is. So I am your equal. And you have the picture of the Prophet Joseph Smith uh, that looks nothing like the actual picture of the Prophet Joseph Smith. If the daguerreotype that was released last year is accurate, he that is the pretty Joseph yeah, Smith that and, looks and nothing I like to, it. I hate to be that guy, but no, uh, no, no church historians think that that's very accurate. Yeah. Yeah. The daguerreotype. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. You're saying yeah. they don't think the daguerreotype is, is, is. No, accurate? I mean, you could tell just by the church's statement. What was their statement? It was essentially, it's nice that uh, this image uh, is out there. We look forward to further things that might give better evidence. That, 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 that. It was the, the problem was, I mean, you, you know, when that image is released, it's released um, with great fanfare by the by the community of Christ. And so sure. you don't want to, you know, be, you know, mean or anything about it. I mean, hey, you don't want to poo poo, but what but what do they have to gain that we would have to lose if that's well, because the their claim, like. their claim to succession is that they are the lineal descendants, right? Of Joseph. So it actually does matter to them more because part of the way that they make their claim to authority, at least it's not as big a deal to him anymore, sure. but it used to be the biggest deal that it's Joseph Smith's son who, who, who leads not, not Brigham Young. Right. Sure. So um, it, it, it is a, and, and many people in the community of Christ hierarchy, you know, do descend directly from Joseph Smith and have over the course of time. Yeah, but what, why does the picture matter? Like, what do they have to gain over the well, picture? Because be, I know all the, you know, that listen, it, if it's passed on and it's through the blood and all the things I get that, <laughs> but, but I, I, what do they have to gain of like, well, first of all, anyone has a lot to gain if they have an image of Joseph Smith, right? Yes. So if you, if you have an actual image of Joseph Smith, that's actually uh, in some way verifiable, well, mm -hmm. then it's worth millions and millions of dollars. So okay. when I worked at the church history department, there were people claiming that they had images of Joseph Smith multiple times a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it it is actually a cottage industry of people finding, you know, photographs saying, I think this is Joseph Smith, or I think this is Brigham Young, and then trying to get it verified so that they can I mean, be able to claim it. And well, the maybe, maybe they have nothing but altruistic motives. And, mm -hmm. and certainly some people do in the sense that I just want to know what Joseph looked like mm -hmm. at the same time, it becomes a highly problematic thing to try to prove that it's the case. And, and so, you know, is it possible that that image is Joseph Smith? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's possible. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly unlikely. But is it possible? Sure. Sure. And, and, and that's kind of what historians have a hard time being definitive because you can only go off of what the evidence is, right? Mm -hmm. And and the the evidence is rarely definitive. Um, but you know, I look, I I, I haven't taken a, a poll of every single Latter-day Saint historian on it, but every one I've talked to doesn't think that it is an image of Joseph. Do you think that some of that pushback is because he, it's so different from what we portray within pictures and, and those things that we go, oh, no, we wanted him to be. Well, that's a, a great, it's a great question. Because, we wanted him to be, you know. <laughs> yeah, he has no former comeliness here. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a great question, but I don't think that's what's driving the historical community. For your Latter-day Saint lay person, you could, that, that could absolutely easily be the case. Mm-hmm. 
that I want him to look the way that I've envisioned him to look. I mean, we see that problem with Latter-day Saint art all the time. Sure. Uh, that, that, well, wait, this is that, that's not how I, I envisioned, you know, this looking. Yeah. That's how the artist painted it, but that's not, that's not how it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, uh, for historians, I, I don't, they already have come to terms with the fact that images we have are just representations. I mean, it's not like we have nothing about Joseph. We do have the Sudcliffe Maudsley, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, images that were created of him. Um, but they aren't photographs, right? And mm-hmm. so that that means that there's, you know, everyone everyone who's ever uh, uh, seen images of portraits of royal families in Europe and then seen actual photographs knows that there's there's some artistic license that goes on, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're painting for a sovereign. So um, it, I think that the primary thing is that there's hesitancy in the historical community, at least in our historical community. Because first, this isn't our first rodeo. I mean, right. we have had, I mean, it was 15 years ago or so, maybe maybe a little less, that there was another image that was found. And many of the same people that are claiming this new image is Joseph were the same people saying a completely different image mm-hmm. was absolutely Joseph. And, 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 and I understand the desire at the same time be, when you can't be definitive, you can't be definitive. Sure. Sure. And, and, you know, the story itself doesn't make very much sense to me. I mean, now, now again, is it possible? It's absolutely possible, Mm -hmm. but is it likely? Well, it's incredibly unlikely that there's an image of Joseph that just so happens to be kept in a locket that no one ever looks at, no one ever opens, no one ever knows it exists until now. Right. Especially because the person who's at least claimed to have been wearing the locket um, would have been the the wife of one of Joseph Smith's sons, right? Well, that doesn't really incorporate how lockets worked in 19th century America, right? There's a huge boom in them following the Civil War. And the person you kept in a locket wasn't your husband's dead father that you've never met before it was someone that was very close to you it was your own family member and this happened especially you know photographs are really coming to their own prior to the american civil war and then you have this just carnage of the civil war you have literally hundreds of thousands of people that that never come back and so there's this huge influx in Things like lockets and mementos as ways of memoring and honoring the dead. Now, no, I'm not saying it didn't exist before, but they start to get mass produced after the Civil War. That's when it becomes a big deal. And so, I mean, even the story of of uh, the provenance seems it, it makes me skeptical because it would be an odd way to have an image. And and actually, we aren't definitive that that provenance happens the way that it is claimed it happened. What we have is, well, we have a picture of her, you know, many, many, many years later in which she appears to be wearing something and it might be this locket. We can't tell, but it might be. Well, that's, that's not very sound provenance, right? It, it, is, is it possible? It's absolutely sure. possible. Is it more likely than not? Well, well, no, it's not more likely than not. It's, it's clearly far less likely when we have no 
other evidence of a Joseph Smith image that any image that someone claims is of Joseph Smith is not an image of Joseph Smith. It's the most likely thing is there isn't an image. Mm. So you need more. And, and I think that's the tough part about this stuff. How would you actually prove it, right? How would you prove that uh, this 100% is? I mean, and even if someone has a handwriting on it, this is Joseph Smith. I, I can't tell you the number of images I've seen where people have written on it who they think it is. They're totally wrong. Sure, sure. In fact, in our our book, the uh, um, From Darkness Unto Light, uh, the, it was on the translation of the Book of Mormon, we made a, a, a terrible error, unfortunately. Now, I mean, you're always going to make mistakes, but we included an image of Charles Anthem. Now, now we got that image from the Library of Congress, right? So it's not like it's not like I was just digging around in my backyard. I'm like, oh, this looks kind of like Anthem. The Library of Congress had an image labeled Charles Anthem. It's a very famous image. Everyone's seen it because whenever Charles Anthem is thrown, that's the image it's shown. Well, a couple of years after we published our book, another researcher through other research determined that in fact, that image that had been labeled Charles Anthem for years and years and years and years was actually an image of someone else. Hmm. Even though the Library of Congress had it labeled as an image of Charles Anthem. Now, he didn't suddenly transform into that person just because someone had labeled it that way. Sure, sure. Uh, and so photographic veracity is incredibly difficult because what you'd really want is here's a known photo of Joseph Smith and here's a purported photo of George, Joseph Smith. Let's, let's compare those two. Well, we don't have that. So there will never be anything definitive. There'll never be anything definitive because what are you comparing it to? Well, I'm comparing it to the Sudcliffe Maudsley. Uh, I, I'm comparing it to the to the death mask. And again, I see lots of things on YouTube and on people's blogs where they, they're trying to demonstrate definitively that this new image looks exactly like the death mask. And I can take you back 10 years to people literally doing the exact same thing with that image that came out 10 years ago. Yeah, it, It's just not a definitive way of doing it. And that's unfortunate because we want answers. And sure, I want to know sure. what Joseph looks like. The destroyer of faith and hope in a picture <laughs> of uh, Joseph Smith, Garrett Dirkmont. I want to take a quick break. Uh, okay. And uh, when we come back, maybe we'll switch gears a little bit. Let's take a quick break and come, uh, break and come back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com. You're right. It's a new ad. What? Well, it's been an entire season since I've recorded a BestDJinUtah.com ad. And well, the wedding season coming to an end at this point, but not really because what happens now is everyone who's going to get married in 2024 reaches out and says, Richie, is it possible? Do you still have this date? And I tell them, yes, hopefully. And then we get you booked. We'd love to be able to work with you. Uh, travel all along the Intermountain West. Some people call it the Jello Belt. Uh, you can go to bestdjinutah.com to request a quote. You can find us on any of the social medias at bestdjinutah. And uh, we can answer any questions. Affordable? Yes. Over 400 five-star reviews? Yes. Highest rated in the state of Utah? Uh-huh. Go on. It's bestdjinutah.com. And, and I'll give you a little hint. It, it also helps me to be able to do this, like, financially. 
support the cultural hall through that and you get something in return imagine running a small business today it's challenging imaging and internet presence is an absolute must even with that you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe now imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients imagine Lennon design whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation advertising media and promotional materials Lennon design is your partner in business they'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can become a Patreon, saintpatreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Uh, some of you, I know, times are tight. It's it's financial. Uh, give the gift of uh, over 800 episodes to your loved ones. A great way to be able to get all of our back catalog easy if you are a Patreon saint. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Or listen, maybe you don't have any interest in that and you're just thinking, what could I get Richie? What what could I get him for Christmas? You could become a Patreon saint. Or or maybe you're looking at the stacks of cash that you have uh, and you're like, man, I've got all this money. What should I do with it? I've already paid 10% to the church. I've got all this extra. What could you do? Same thing. Patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. We'll take it. We'll, we'll be good stewards of your money if you want to become a Patreon saint. Uh, Garrett, the Council of 50 is another sort of interesting thing. There, there's a hard shift in our conversation. Yeah, yeah. He's doing. Um, I find it fascinating. Um, and most people, I don't think, have the slightest idea what it is, what yeah. came from it. So many people that, uh, I don't like the term detractors, um, but so many people point to the Council of 50 that go, listen, if the church was pure, and then the Council of 50 happened, and that's when all hell broke loose. I, I would love to chat with you as an expert Hopefully I can label you as such on the Council of 50. First of all, what it is and what you think it really was all about. Well, so, um, yeah, it, it certainly, it's shrouded in some mystery, right? Um, part of that is because they, this was intended to be a private, you know, a, a, I don't want to say secret, but, you know, a, a private organization, um, it's very but, late in but Joseph's to push. Mystery. It was secret. It was don't tell people that you're going to this. So exactly, private, yeah. But so, also so very secret. It, it's what's going on is kept secret, but it seems to be really widely well known in Nauvoo. So it's one of those secrets that's, uh, you know, uh, it, it's one of those secrets that's not kept very well. Let's put uh -huh. it that way. Yeah. Um, in March of 1844, so, you know, just to bring everybody right up to speed, Joseph Smith's going to be murdered in June of 1844. So we're just a couple of months prior to Joseph Smith's murder. Now, in uh, that, that's when it's founded. But in order to, to really explain where it comes from, I kind of need to take even a little bit further step back. Please. And, and that's in December of 1843. Joseph Smith is going to declare himself to be a candidate for president. Now, what's going on is that Joseph has written letters to all of the candidates um, that are, are supposedly going to stand for the presidency in the, in the following election, the 1844 election. Um, and that election was pretty wide open. The reason why it was so wide open is the current president of the United States, John Tyler, 
was the most hated president in American history. Now, I know that you're thinking, no, no, I know Richard Nixon. No, look, look, there's lots. I, I know it's hard because a lot of people hate a lot of presidents. Sure. But you have to just bear with me and believe John Tyler's the most hated. Why is he the most hated? Well, John Tyler is a lifelong Democrat, lifelong Democrat, and he gets disgruntled with the Democratic Party. And so he agrees to join William Henry Harrison's Whig, the other political parties named Whig, which is like the, the hair club for men party. It's literally the worst named political party in history. But um, the, the Whig party, uh, William Henry Harrison's this famous war general, you know, won the battle of Tippecanoe. And he, he, the Whigs have never won a presidency. John Tyler, very famous Virginian, very powerful Virginian. He joins the ticket. He switches parties, joins the ticket as a vice president. And so many Democrats blame John Tyler for the reason why William Henry Harrison wins. Hmm. Well, uh, William Henry Harrison does what all good Whig presidents do, and that's die in office. I mean, he dies very quickly after he's elected within 100 days. Uh, the, the only other Whig president uh, that's elected is Zachary Taylor, also dies in office. Well, so now suddenly John Tyler is the vice president of the United States is now the president. And, and but he's not really a Whig. He's never been a Whig. He's always been a Democrat his whole life. The Whigs, who now think we finally have the presidency, they keep trying to pass laws that are Whig laws. Well, he vetoes all of them. So the Whig Party hates him. The Democratic Party blames him for the fact they lost the presidency in the first place. Everybody hates him. <laughs> so he's not going to he, he puts out feelers to stand for a reelection but he ends up not. So Joseph writes to all of the potential candidates. One of them, one that people really thought was going to be the, the, the nominee was the same Martin Van Buren who had been president before. The same who's famous in Mormondom as your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you, right? Well, he writes to all of them and says, what are you going to do for the Latter-day Saints? I mean, we've had millions of dollars of property taken. Dozens of people have been murdered. I mean, for all the violence that took place in Missouri, not one person is ever even charged for the violence enacted against Latter-day Saints, hmm. let alone convicted. Of course, they're not going to be convicted, but they aren't even indicted. So there's this wholesale violence that takes place with nothing going on. All of these candidates write back and say, essentially, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. And that places Joseph in this really terrible situation. There, the antagonism towards the saints in Illinois is ratcheting up. You can start to feel that it's getting similar to the way it was in Ohio and the way it was in Missouri. And now you have every declared candidate who's now on record telling you, well, I'm not going to help your people. Right. Well, they all know, look, it's political suicide. Latter-day Saints are hated in the United States in the 19th century. Absolutely hated. And they all know if they write a letter to Joseph Smith saying, yeah, I'll help your people out, that and that ever becomes public, they can kiss their chances of becoming president goodbye. So now what does Joseph do? He does two things. He first, in the short term, makes the decision that he is going to declare himself to be a candidate for president. Not because he thinks he's going to win, but like all third-party candidates in American history, I know... I know everyone who follows a third party right now is thinking, no, no, I'm pretty sure the constitutional law party is going to win this year. Yeah. You know, that's great to think that. Uh, I can tell you as a historian, the no third party has ever even come close. And hey, the when they win Utah, we they win Utah on occasion. We, we, <laughs> right. Well, so 
let me tell you what. We throw uh, our boats away that way on occasion. The third party uh, that came the closest isn't even, it's not even a very good statistical measure because the third party that came the closest was the bull moose party, uh, which was Teddy Roosevelt. And he had already been president for two terms. Hmm. Uh, And so he was ridiculously popular uh, because he'd already been president and then ran as a third party. And, and so he was the most successful and still didn't win. Not very successful. Right. Right. So, so Joseph isn't, and he even states that, you know, he doesn't think he's going to win, but the point of a third party when, when you're thinking clear about it is to bring attention to your issue that's not being covered. Right. So you, you see this all the time in American politics today. I know that people who are members of the green party in America really believe that, you know, I know that they'll say, we really believe the green party person is going to be the new president. Sure. But the reality of why you still support the Green Party, if you have those beliefs, is by putting pressure on the the two parties, you can cause them to, if they want my vote, they want me to not stay home. They're going to they're going to have a better green platform if they want me to not just vote for a third party or to stay home. And so third parties have the ability to kind of push the main parties to adopt positions that they might not otherwise because they don't want to lose votes. Joe's is trying to do the same thing here. Illinois is incredibly contested. It only went for uh, the Democratic Party uh, by by fewer than 5,000 votes in the last presidential election. Hmm. And now you've got 20,000 Latter-day Saints living there that weren't there before. And so it's interesting. All these people write back to him. They all write back saying, hey, you know, because they they don't want to be on bad terms. They all say things like, oh, I feel so bad that, you know, people were murdered and stuff. But, you know, shucks, as president, I couldn't do anything about that. Um, so Joseph declares himself to be a candidate for president so that the Latter-day Saints have someone to vote for and to bring attention to the cause of these persecuted minorities. But he also knows he's not going to win. So that, that's a short-term solution for the coming election. It's not a long-term solution. And Joseph has, by November of 1843, he's come to the conclusion that the Latter-day Saints are going to have to leave the United States if they want to have peace. We tried. I mean, we've, we tried a Northern state. We tried a Western state. We tried a Southern state. We tried a Western Northern state. And it doesn't matter that, that it will always be more politically beneficial to hate Latter-day Saints than it will be to protect them. And so he makes the decision that they're going to have to leave. The council of 50 is an outgrowth of that. First of all, the council is created to help electioneer for Joseph Smith. We're going to send people out to go, you know, say, you know what, vote for Joseph kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the, the real long-term goals of it are to figure out where the church is going to move, where outside of the United States are we going to go, and then also to write the new constitution of this kingdom of God on earth wherever they go. Their plan is to go somewhere outside of the country, establish a new nation, and then live the way God wants them to live. And so already that becomes a little bit controversial for people with uh, you know, American sensibilities, right? Saying like, well, wait a minute, you're trying to create a, a, a kingdom? Yes, which is exactly why they want to move where no one else lives. Because the problem is everywhere we move, people are upset that we're there. So if we move somewhere that no one wants to live, I don't know, next to a giant salt lake, uh, then, you know, who's going to complain? Now, of course, right. there's, a lot, there's, of course, Native Americans everywhere that they could be planning to move. But, but they believe that they're going to, rapidly convert Native Americans, that they're all the House of Israel, that they're going to join in and become part of this movement. 
So they 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 have this idea: we'll move among the, the the Native Americans, they will become converted, we'll all become the kingdom of God on earth, and we will be prepared for when Jesus comes again. This will be the government that He can then assume and, and lead lead the world. Um, high high minded, right? So so they meet on this. Um, multiple times. And in those meetings, there are some just beautiful things that are taught that we've never even really heard before because the minutes of those meetings were not public. They, they, they did not become public until they were published by the Joseph Smith papers a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Um, so uh, it's important in the sense that you get all of these lost teachings and lost ideas. And then even after Joseph is murdered, the Council of Fifty is one of the means whereby Brigham Young and other leaders of the church continue to prepare for the exodus out of the country. So it, it it's interesting because it's kind of this dual organization that's meeting alongside the Quorum of the Twelve, but all the Quorum of the Twelve are in it. So it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not like uh, it's not like it's you know well we left we left one of them out. No, it's all the Quorum of the Twelve are already in it. And and most of the presidents of the seventy are in it, and and you know th- there's many church leaders are in it, but it's it's kind of a different focus. It's a focus of we're going to go create a new nation. We're going to go somewhere um, where we can live in peace. Now, they they do consider going other places. They 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 come very close to moving the church to Texas. To the Republic of Texas, which is hallelujah that they didn't. Well, Sorry, you know what though? I mean, sometimes on a cold Provo day in the winter, <laughs> you're thinking, I would this wouldn't be that bad if this was, you know, BYU San Antonio. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there'd be way better, you know, way better Tex Mex food sure, in the sure. area. If but but yeah, so they 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 really consider it because at the time Texas is its own independent country. And they they send ambassadors down to go meet with the president of Texas. President of Texas actually says, you know what? Come on down. Come on down, because his biggest threat is Mexico keeps invading them. And so again, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 Latter-day Saints come down. Well, great. They can be a speed bump that Mexico goes over on the way to invade us. We'll put them right there on the border, which is exactly where they plan. Um, but it will help bolster the nation. They stop considering Texas because Texas gets annexed by the United States. And once it becomes part of the United States, even though the the president, now governor of Texas, Sam Houston, is still willing to have him come. No, the, the whole point is we've tried the United States. The United States will not protect us and, and, and won't protect us. And so they drop that as an option and they then look uh, to other places and eventually end up in Salt Lake. But, but so, so that's, yeah, that's sort of what I hear. If I can, if I can be divisive for a okay. second, that's sort of what I hear about the council of 50, right? It's and then that's and they were planning and then, and it's all that. Yeah. But, but, but then also shrouded within this is, is everything with polygamy that you don't hear that it's mentioned very much. Hiram uh, sort of gets incorporated in on polygamy, a story, an anecdote that I've heard about it is that this is meeting and Hiram hadn't been attending. And then he goes and then shortly thereafter, he's like, yeah, polygamy is my jam, everybody. Let's do it. It wasn't just these temporal things. What what do we know uh, from from the minutes that have been released with the Joseph Smith papers surrounding that and or and I don't to the point that you're able to answer this question, were there some minutes that are redacted by the church saying, no thanks, 
This uh, will, so yeah, let me answer your second question first, because that's an important one. No. Um, in fact, I can tell you working on them, I had access to the entirety of them. All of these originally recorded in William Clayton's handwriting, and there were no redactions made. So uh, if someone wants to claim that there are redactions, then they're claiming it without evidence, right? I mean, so mm -hmm. someone can always say, well, I bet there was like another book that you like didn't publish. Well, uh, okay. I mean, but you don't have evidence of that. You don't have anyone who says that. You don't have any reference. But I have a YouTube channel, Garrett. Exactly. If I, I have a YouTube yeah. channel, yeah. that proves everything. Yep. Well, so um, secondly, the story about Hiram is not a Council of 50 story in part because that story or that that reference to, uh, that you made there um, is from 1843. And the Council of 50 isn't created until March of 1844. Um, so uh, this uh, idea that, you know, Hiram comes late to the understanding of plural marriage, I think that we have some good evidence for that, mm -hmm. that he is, you know, Joseph is teaching it in secret at first and that that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody i mean that it is something that is only taught to people who have already been taught things like the endowment or or that are part of that um in in 1842 and so it, it is it, it appears to be the case that Hiram isn't taught immediately but he's certainly taught long before most members of the church are I mean, so um, the account of that that meeting um, isn't something from the Council of Fifty. It's something mm -hmm. from um, uh, what sometimes people will uh, reference uh, our accounts of what they call the people that were endowed the Quorum of the Anointed because they've been people that had been endowed in Joseph Smith's Red Brick Store. So there are certain people that are learning these temple covenants. There are certainly everyone knows they're building a temple, and everyone knows there's going to be further covenants. But only some people are being slowly initiated into receiving temple covenants at first. Hmm. Um, so I mean, you have a pretty good idea what they are. I mean, Doctrine and Covenants section 124 makes it pretty clear, right? Sure. That there's going to be washings and anointings, that there's going uh, to be endowments. Um, and so that what is going to happen, or at least the additional ordinances that are going to take place when the temple is completed, those are are well known to members of the church in terms of that they are going to take place, but how those are progressing though, you know, that, that hasn't been revealed to everyone yet. And, and so, um, but yeah, the council of 50 doesn't have so much to do with that. Now it does have multiple discussions in it about the necessity of finishing the temple, right? Cause after Joseph's murdered, there are quite a few people who are like, yeah, let's not spend any time on this at all. Yeah. Uh, we should, we should just get out. Um, but you know, there's, uh, there's some cool insights that, that you get from, uh, the council of 50. I mean, here, let me, let me share one pretty, pretty Please. funny one, actually. <laughs> um, so they get together, they're having this discussion, uh, you know, and I don't know if it becomes apparent to Joseph, but he makes it pretty clear early on that, Hey, in this council, we're all going to say what we actually think, right? Wait, 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 what? I've never it, heard this in a church meeting. Well, exactly. That's exactly the whole point, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think all of us who are in, who, who've ever been in a ward council or any, if you've ever been in any council at all in the church, 
at least for me. So I'm not going to indict everybody. I'm going to indict myself. And then everyone can say, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I mean, I know that when I'm on a ward council, I rarely say exactly what I'm thinking in the meeting. In fact, I'm spending most of my time wanting to get out of the meeting. And then the, <laughs> the other half of the time, uh, wanting to not upset someone in the meeting. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'll hear someone say, you know what, this is what we're going to do as an elders quorum. And I'll be like, uh, in my mind, I'm thinking that's you, you, you want to, you want to have a, a dance, a dance competition for the, for the war. Oh, that's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. But, but in my, in my mind, I'm saying that out loud, I'm saying like, okay, yeah, what can I do to help? Um, and Joseph is pretty adamant about it. He says that, um, you need to, you need to speak your mind on things. One of the things he says is the reason why men always a fail failed to establish important measures was because in their organization, they could never agree to disagree long enough to select the pure gold from the dross by investigation. Yes. First, first of all, he wants, you need to actually have a discussion. Um, and, and he, he says, I want everyone to speak their mind on these things. In fact, he'll, he'll actually say, um, he says, I want you to speak your mind on these things, whether it be good or bad. And if you will not rise up and acquit yourselves and speak your mind in these important matters, I shall consider you nothing better than doughheads. Uh, nice 19th century pejorative that Joseph uses that you're a doughhead if uh, if you're going to just if you're not going to say what you think. And you know, I talk about practical application. I mean, you wish you could go to a, a council meeting in the church where everyone fully understood that. First and foremost, don't go in thinking that whatever idea you have is right. The entire point of getting together is to get a better idea than the one you have. Mm -hmm. So, but, but we actually do the exact opposite. We're all, we're so sensitive that when I go in and I say, you know what we're going to do for Sunday school, we're going to do this. And, you know, and the Relief Society president says, oh, I don't think that'll work very well. Instead of like listening to what she has to say, I go, we'll too. And, and I get all mad and, right? and, and and I get defensive when the entire point of the meeting is to find the best way to do it. Yeah. And, and what are the odds that whatever I came up with will always be the, I mean, come on, it won't always be the best. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one good takeaway from the way that they counsel together is you should go into a council meeting with an idea, wanting to contribute, but expecting expecting not not being surprised expecting that whatever the decision is will be different than what you think yes and being fine with it <laughs> um joseph's going to go on to say so so what part of what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to write the constitution for the kingdom of god on earth no uh, small task yeah exactly just a yeah. little you know it's fine <laughs> just hey uh could you get the hymnals yeah and how about you you know i what i need from you is i just need you to write the constitution that jesus would have when jesus comes what? okay cool, cool. you know just the constitution <laughs> jesus would have so John Taylor is the head of this committee and, uh, you know, it's still the church or so still committee. So he's the head of this committee and, and he spends several weeks trying to do this. And, and the council actually starts kind of pressing on him a little bit like, Hey, do you want to give your report on the constitution? I I've got to check the specs on the, I've got a thing. I'm going <laughs> to, we'd like maybe a little more time. I mean, he's just constantly delaying it. And finally, John Taylor says to, to Joseph, he's like, Joseph essentially says, can't you just receive this by revelation? Hmm. Because look, anything we do is not going to be 
right. How can we write the constitution for the kingdom of God on earth? Can't you just receive a revelation and then it, then it will be right? And then Joseph teaches him this really interesting thing that I, I think, again, applicable. He says, it is necessary for the council to exhaust their wisdom in this thing. And except they do, they will never know but that they are as wise as God himself. Mm. And ambitious men will, like Lucifer, think that they are as wise as God and will try to lift themselves up and put their foot on the neck of others. There has always been some man to put himself forward to say, I am the great. I, I want the council to exert all of their wisdom in this thing. And when they see they cannot get a perfect law themselves, and I can, then they will see from whence wisdom flows. Wow. So, so what Joseph's teaching is, if I just give it to you, you'll be able to criticize it. You will say, well, you know, I wish he would have said this about juries, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but if you exhaust every, every effort you have to create the best thing you can create, and then God makes up the difference, well, then what are you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say that. I just didn't, even though I wrote everything before. I mean, and, and Joseph has experience with this of people receiving revelation from him. And as soon as they receive it, turning around and saying, well, I think he probably should have mentioned this. And so it's, I, I thought a cool, a cool thing too, that, you know, God expects us to exercise all of our own efforts. And then he makes up the difference rather than uh, the other way around the lazy man's way, which is just give it to me, God. And, uh, and I'll go for it. Um, do you see any, uh, in the notes of the council of 50, maybe, uh, I don't know, you'd, you'd have to interpret tone or something like that. Yeah. I think that we get the idea that when Joseph, uh, was, uh, murdered that then it's like, yeah, there was some time and then Brigham Young looked like Joseph Smith and we all followed him. And I think that's sort of the narrative that we teach, yeah. not recognizing you know, the thousands, including family of Joseph who followed James Strang, Sidney Rigdon, you know, and Brigham Young, among others. Do yeah. we see any sort of uh, posturing in the Council of 50 with people being like, hey, you know, I mean, I, I got a pretty good idea and uh, follow me if you something happens to Joseph. You certainly, I mean, you bring up a, a great point, right? That that there are there are multiple people that are making claims to um uh multiple people that are making claims to leadership after joseph dies now sure. joseph the third is is many 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 years later okay so the whole reorganized church movement it is it isn't even founded until 1860 okay so the the saints are out of the country for more than a decade before that the, you know some of the remnants coalesce to create that um james strang is relatively early but one of the things you find um, with the succession crisis, and so they do talk about it in the Council of 50, but most of the people involved in it are not part of the problem of succession, at least initially. Okay, mm -hmm. So let, let me give you a great example. The Council of 50 is actually started as a result of a letter sent to Joseph Smith by Lyman White. Now Lyman White was one of the people in you know in prison with Joseph in 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 uh, Liberty Jail. Lyman White uh, was was an apostle. He was the apostle sent up to Wisconsin, my my mission alma mater, <laughs> right? The, uh, uh, to get timber, pinery, the pineries to send timber down the river to build the not only the Nauvoo House but also the, the Nauvoo Temple. And Lyman White. It, you know, knows that they've been in communication about going to possibly go to Texas, you know, at least they've talked about it. 
And so he sends this letter saying, Hey, can we, you know, what we like to do is after we're done with all of this, we'd like to take this whole group or a great group of people and go down to the Republic of Texas and settle. And Joseph gives him this kind of, you know, tentative. Okay, that's fine. Well, then Joseph gets murdered. Well, so Lyman White, you know, he, he comes back and he very much still wants to go down to Texas, even after, you know, uh, the church stopped considering Texas as a location. And so you do get a little bit of that in the Council of 50, where Brigham Young is saying, hey, look, you can still go because Joseph said you can go, but you can't try to take other people with you. You, you had a certain group that you asked Joseph, can I take this group? Yes, you can take that group. Hmm. And so Lyman White goes down to Texas. And in fact, there's a, a, a book uh, uh, called Polygamy on the Paternalis, uh, in which Lyman White will, he'll eventually stop recognizing the authority of the church in Utah. It, it takes several years. Mm-hmm. And then he'll eventually be disfellowshipped and then eventually excommunicated. And so you have this breakaway sect of Mormonism that's in uh, Texas uh, for several years. Um, uh, and, and so that in that way is related to the Council of 50. But one of the aspects of the succession that I think is less known to people is that there are people, thousands of people who eventually follow these other offshoot groups, but most of them are not people that were living in Nauvoo at the time that Joseph Smith is murdered. Hmm. Um, you know, Strang is going to get several dozen followers from, from Nauvoo and eventually he'll get hundreds, but it's not like thousands of people followed him immediately. Um, Similar uh, with uh, with other people who who break away. I mean, eventually Alphaeus Cutler will take a group. Uh, he'll leave from from winter quarters, though. And, and so there's multiple offshoot groups that happen. But the vast majority of the people in Nauvoo, they they do recognize the Quorum of the Twelve as the leaders. And I think that's kind of a function of when you're in Nauvoo, it's very clear to you that the Quorum of the Twelve is who Joseph has running everything, right? Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. you're just a brand new convert from England and you show up on, you know, in Boston getting off your ship and you're met by a Strangite who says, Hey, hey, you don't want to go to, to Nauvoo. I mean, Brigham Young's teaching all kinds of crazy stuff there. He he like says that you can become like God and and he's saying that, you know, they're practicing polygamy. Well, you you know, that's not exactly the first discussion for yeah. people in Britain. So they've never heard any of that. And so it's a very easy sell to these new converts that Brigham Young has changed what Joseph was originally teaching. Now, of course, historically speaking, it's, it's actually the other way around, right? I mean, um, all of these offshoot groups, what do they do? They abandon the teachings that Joseph Smith was teaching, right? Mm-hmm. They, they maintain some of them for a little while, but work for the dead, for instance, baptisms for the dead. That's a pretty essential thing to Joseph. He talks about it constantly. It, it matters so much to him. And you can just take a look uh, at the groups that have formed since Joseph was murdered, the ones that, that that broke away after Joseph was murdered. How many of them maintain the practice of baptism for the dead? None of them. Yeah. Well, why not? Because the most fundamental principle of Protestant Christianity is that you have to accept Jesus in this life to be saved. Baptism for the dead is incredibly radical. It, it is it is essentially throwing that argument completely away, that that Protestant argument that you have to accept Jesus in this life, and, and that's it. There is no other argument um, for, for Joseph to say, you know, 
you know, the, you have to accept Jesus in order to be saved, except when you don't, which is most <laughs> of the time. Uh, yeah. it, it, it completely transforms who can be saved. You go from a world where almost no one is a Christian, where almost no one is saved, to a world where literally everyone can be saved. And that's too much for most Christians. It's even too much for most Latter-day Saints, well, many Latter-day Saints, which is sure. why many of these groups that break off, that that's a doctrine that goes by the wayside pretty quick because yeah. you're you're arguing that conversion can happen outside of this life. Yeah. That's, well, and the reality of what you're even saying, I think in modern day 21st century members of the church, the idea that everyone can. I don't know that we truly grasp it, understand it, or feel it, right? I think there's still an oh. insistence of, but but yeah, now. But you, this team, come on right now. Yeah. You know what? I have loved uh, uh, the last couple of talks that, uh, well, not the last couple, but over the last couple of years, President Oaks has really highlighted this unique aspect of our doctrine. And I think because of other reasons, people are not listening to what he's saying. But what he's teaching is incredibly radical that essentially everyone's going to heaven. Now, now he does include the phrase with exceptions too few to be mentioned here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. We do believe in perdition, but essentially nobody's going there. And the reality is that the, the plan of salvation is so great and so glorious. The atonement of Christ is so all encompassing that yes, you're going to suffer for your sins after this life. But everybody will eventually have suffered enough to where they are resurrected and they go to a kingdom of bliss and glory. I mean, that's in that is incredibly radical theology, incredibly radical to the Christian world. And it's it's one of our core doctrines here that the, the doctrine covenant section 76, uh, along with doctrine covenant section 93, and of course, many other prophetic statements that every single person and, and it all goes back to this pre belief in a pre-existence yeah because we believe that we accepted jesus before we came here that's why we're here we are all going to eventually end up in some level of heaven and that is that is not christ the, the normal orthodox christian doctrine and it, you know brigham young uh he'll talk about this a lot it's a, one of his favorite doctrines it starts off being one of his doctrines that he really struggles with because he, how could this possibly be the case? That means the entire Christian world is wrong about everyone going to hell. Right. Oh, no, maybe they are. Right. And, uh, but Brigham, when he talks about it, I mean, he exults in it, you know, that to, to, to know that, you know, pagans, people who don't even know about Jesus, that they go to heaven to, to know that the, the people who are, uh, are Hindus or Muslims, that, that everyone goes to heaven. I mean, he is, he loves the universal aspect of it. And, you know, hopefully all of us do. We love the idea that all of our brothers and sisters all over the world, all of them are our children of God who are going to be brought back to heaven, some level of heaven. Right. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I kind of digressed a little bit for that, but, but that doctrine among other doctrines are perceived as two Joseph Smith teaching that God was once a man and that he became God and that mankind has the ability to grow, to become like God that's conceived as being far too radical. No. 
And so it's easy to say, oh, Brigham Young's teaching that false doctrine that you can become like God. Well, Brigham Young's teaching it because Joseph Smith taught it. Yeah. And in fact, there's a, I just recently completed, um, we published, in fact, I've put it up for your video here. Go this, on. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the Brigham Young journals, um, uh, the early Brigham Young journals all the way up through the end of Nauvoo. Um, uh, in, in these journals, you know, it shows Brigham Young just as a, you know, average member of the church. And then, you know, as things come up further down the line, all of his missionary efforts, but there's a really interesting place in there that kind of gives you an idea of why Brigham Young is so adamant that um, the Quorum of the Twelve has the authority to leave the church. Because Sidney Rigdon is the first to stand up and say, hey, I'm a member of the First Presidency. Mm -hmm. I was there with Joseph when Joseph had his vision, DNC 76, right? I mean, Sidney Rigdon has a pretty good claim to being a leader in the church because he's been a leader for so long. Sure. Um. And Joseph, uh, uh, you know, clearly is giving more and more authority to the Quorum of the Twelve. We can also see that. But after, you know, Joseph is murdered, Sidney Rigdon quickly comes and makes presentations to the people about why he should be the protector of the church. And um, they have this meeting, and this is part of Brigham Young's journal. He says, this is a day long to be remembered by me. It's the first time I've met with the church at Nauvoo since brothers Joseph and Hiram was killed. Uh, and the uh, the occasion on which the church was called somewhat painful to me. Brother Rigdon had come from Pittsburgh to see the brethren. He spells it B-R-O-T-H-E-R-I-N, the brethren, um, to see the brethren to find out if they would sustain him as the leader of the saints. Uh, I perceived a spirit to hurry business along, to get a trustee and trust in the presidency over the church. Priesthood or no priesthood, right or wrong, and this grieved my heart. Now that Joseph is gone, it seems as though many want to draw off a party and be leaders, but this cannot be. The church must be one or they are not the Lord's. The saints looked as though they'd lost a friend, a friend that was able and willing to counsel them in all things. In this time of sorrow, my heart was filled with compassion. After Brother Rigdon had made a long speech to the saints, I think I should think about 5,000. I arose and I spoke to the people. My heart was swollen with compassion toward them. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, even the spirit of the prophets, I was enabled to comfort the hearts of the saints. In the afternoon, according to my request, the people assembled by the thousands, and I laid before them the order of the church and the power of the priesthood. And after a long and laborious talk of about two hours in the open air with the wind blowing, the church was of one heart and one mind, and they wanted uh, the Quorum of the Twelfth to lead. Um, he's going to, you know, so... The, the church members there in Nauvoo, they all you know overwhelmingly vote for the Quorum of the Twelve to be the leaders of the church. So it's, it's sometimes depicted as like some kind of a, you know usurpation of power. I mean, a, a democratically elected one, I guess, right? I mean, it, it the, the the overwhelming vote falls to to Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve. But then I think the other reason why it's so central to to Brigham is. Again, in his journal, uh, 3rd of September, 1844, he says, I had an interview with Brother Rigdon. He said that he had power and authority above the 12, and he did not consider himself bound to their counsel. In the evening, the 12 had a counsel with him again. So they really are trying to bring him on board. I mean, they meet with him over and over and over again. Um, and he was far from being or feeling 
and interest with the 12. After a long conversation, Brother Rigdon's license was demanded, but he wouldn't give it up. And this is the part that I think really solidifies why Brigham is saying, no, the Quorum of the Twelve leads the church. Sidney Rigdon said that the church had not been led for a long time by the Lord. Now, Joseph's just barely been murdered, right? Mm -hmm. So when you say the church hasn't been led for a long time by the Lord, this can't be a reference to Brigham Young running it, right? And in fact, Sidney Rigdon, when he does go and create his own church, he is going to put aside many of the teachings that Joseph had given in Nauvoo. And so one way of looking at Brigham Young is he is an absolute defender of Joseph Smith. For him, if you don't accept Joseph Smith as a prophet, and a prophet the whole way, not not a prophet, then right up till, oh, you know, he taught about, you know, mankind becoming like God, and then he became a false prophet because of that, that if you don't believe he's a prophet and everything that he taught, whether it's popular or not, then you can't be a Latter-day Saint. Being a Latter-day Saint means believing Joseph Smith's prophet. And in the conference that follows, uh, Brigham Young will say, it is a test of our fellowship to believe and confess that Joseph Smith lived and died a prophet of God in good standing. And I don't want anyone to fellowship with the 12 who says that Joseph is fallen. Um, so it, it becomes a big deal. And, and in fact, another Council of 50 discussion that happens, they're talking about getting ready to leave. And of course, things are getting worse. There's more and more violence against them. The state of Illinois repeals the the, the Nauvoo Charter, so they, they have no legal rights anymore as far as you know being able to even have a police force, raise taxes. They're the largest city in the state, but they are no longer a city. I mean, that that's how ridiculous this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as they're talking about leaving, you know, people are pretty upset. And um, as they're talking, John Taylor, you know with still a bullet in the back of his knee, very upset. He has some pretty choice things to say about the government and how poorly they'd been treated. And Alman Babbitt kind of interjects and says, hey, you know, we need to be careful about making any inflammatory speeches. You know, remember when we were in Missouri, people said some things they shouldn't have said, and, you know, that that just made things worse for us. Well, Brigham Young just stops the meeting. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, the conversation goes on for a second, and then when Brigham Young gets a chance to talk again, he says, that when Elder Babbitt was speaking about inflammatory speeches, I know that he had Joseph in his mind, and no man can ever speak against Joseph in my presence, but I shall tell him of it. <laughs> uh, he is utterly devoted to Joseph, right? In fact, he'll say that carrying out Joseph's measures is sweeter than honey to me. I mean, he 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 is absolutely devoted to the prophet, and and. In fact, here's here's uh, another quote from him. He says, to carry out Joseph's measures is sweeter than honey to me or the honeycomb. While Joseph was living, it seemed like he was hurried by the Lord all the time, and especially for the last year. It seemed like he'd laid out work for this church that would last them 20 years to carry out. And I used to wonder why it was that he used to be hurried, so not supposing that he was going to die, but now I understand the reason. Um, so he, uh, he, he, he really... You know, there's there are lots of people who say we're not really going to leave the United States, right? I mean, can't we just negotiate with people? Can't we still stay in Nauvoo? Maybe we should go back to Kirtland. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are brought up that aren't leave the country and everything behind and walk 1,500 miles over a mountain range. 
And, but for Brigham, it's, this is what Joseph said we're doing. Hmm. So this is what we're doing. Yeah. But I mean, you know, maybe we could but, but like, really? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's the same way with the temple stuff. I mean, uh, with, with temple work, with ceilings, with work for the dead, you know, are you, you really going to keep going with the temple? Yeah. Cause Joseph said, we have to finish the temple. Well, shouldn't we like do other things? We do whatever Joseph told us to do. That's hmm. what we do. Hmm. Um, and he is very single-minded in that regard. And, and so while you have all these people making claims and, and, you know, these offshoot groups, what we have from Joseph, we have because Brigham refused to give it up, right? The others, they're going to, they're going to cast aside work for the dead. They're going to cast aside temple endowments. They're going to cast aside eternal ceilings. Brigham's not going to cast anything aside, even though it's not popular. We, we don't do it because it's popular. We do it because Joseph said so. And Joseph's the prophet and he received revelation from God. So you do get to see some of that play out in the Council of 50 Minutes. You, you certainly see this devotion that they have to Joseph. Um, in fact, maybe one more quote from the Council of 50 I'll share with you real quick. Is that, uh, um, this is from, uh, it, it's from uh, Porter Rockwell. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, they know, they know Porter Rockwell all right. And uh, um, the reality is there are lots of biographies written about Porter Rockwell. None of them are uh, written by him or quoting him or quoting letters that he wrote because Porter Rockwell was illiterate. So you, everything you get on him is always secondhand mm -hmm. because he can't write. I mean, I mean, legitimately, you can actually see documents in the church archives where he's signing something and it's like a cartoon. It literally is an X. <laughs> And, and underneath someone has written this X in behalf of Porter Rockwell. I mean, it, it really is. He is illiterate, right? <laughs> but of course, this huge friend to Joseph. Well, because William Clayton is keeping these minutes of these meetings in real time, uh, he we capture a little bit of Porter Rockwell. He uh, is in the Council of 50 and he comments and it's pretty Porter Rockwelly. I don't know if that's a, if that's a way. I of think it would be Porter Rockwellian. Rockwellian, yeah, it's, it's Rockwellian, like yeah. Orwellian, yeah. only Rockwellian. Uh, he says, I say yes to everything that's good and that is right. I was a friend to Joseph Smith when he lived, and I'm still his friend. So this is after Joseph's murder, and they're all talking about what do we do now that Joseph's murdered. Porter Rockwell goes on. Joseph can't avenge his wrongs himself, but I mean to avenge them for him. And if I get into trouble, I want you to help me if you can. And this is actually how it's written in the minutes without criminating yourselves. Um, so I assume that's how he said it without criminating yourselves. If not, let me go. So at least at that point in the immediate aftermath of Joseph being murdered, Porter Rockwell was angry enough. He's like, I'm, I'm going to get some vigilante justice if I have to. Now he doesn't, we don't have evidence of that, but um, the last thing he says is probably a very good measure of the man. He says, I love my friends and I hate my enemies. I can't love them even if I wanted to. Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, that's a little bit harsh, uh, you know, but at the same time, I think it's a pretty good example of, of someone who he loved Joseph Smith. He was a life, I mean, not lifelong friend, but most of his life, a friend of Joseph Smith and when Joseph was murdered, it was a personal thing to him. It wasn't just, oh, no, we need to figure out who the new prophet is. It was his friend that was murdered. Um, you, you see this from John Taylor, too. John Taylor is bitter about it. Now, 
part of that is he has four holes in himself from the shots he also received, but he's bitter. He is bitter that they've stolen the prophet by, by murdering him. And, you know, I think sometimes we forget these are, these are real people. They, they interact with one another. They're friends. They spend all kinds of time together and to watch your, your friend be murdered in front of you. I mean, that's going to lead to a little bit of PTSD. You know, it, it is, uh, it, it's something that they carry with them. In fact, I think the early church carries a lot of psychological uh, damage among its members because of what happened in both Missouri and in Nauvoo. I mean, the violence was just so over the top that how do you, you know, <laughs> if you and I were to even witness some of the things that happened to someone that we didn't love and know, we'd be in therapy for the rest of our lives. Right. So anyway, um, that's probably too much on the Council of 50. But no, I mean, no, they... I love it. I love every <laughs> bit of that. Uh, I want to take a break. And when we come back, I have a really just sort of speculative question that I'm, I'm for whatever reason, it's come to my mind a couple of times. I want to ask you that. Okay. Uh, I want to give you an episode suggestion for the standard oh, truth. Okay. And there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you as we come back in the third block of the cultural hall. I had an email from someone who listens to the cultural hall. I believe it was a, not a lifer, but a convert who said, Hey, Richie, are you still teaching the podcast classes? And the answer is yes. In fact, I have even fine tuned it more than I ever had before. So you might be asking, well, Richie, how do I get in on that? Well, you can always email contact at the cultural or you can find me on social media, wherever I'm at Richie T. Stedman and reach out and say, Hey, I listen to the cultural hall. I would love to learn more about podcasting or your podcasting services, a class, a cohort. There's a group of people. I've even taught uh, the ward historian about podcasting, what it is and how it might be a great benefit to people. If that's something that you're interested in, whether it's for your business or just for your private hobby, maybe something you see your future in, would love to be able to help you along the way. You can find me again anywhere on social media, Richie T. Stedman, or you can uh, just contact us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Let us podcast together. To be clear, this is still a show. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop and they start at only $29 a month and it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, leave us a review, why don't you? Wherever you're getting this episode, I know people do it for the standard of truth. They say, what a great episode, blah, 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 blah. All the nice things for the algorithm. You guys did it for them. Why don't you do it for the cultural hall? Come on now. Uh, <laughs> most people do it just on Apple, but if you're able to leave even just stars in different places, or you listen to this episode and you go, man, I know people in my life that need to know about this, or they're fascinated by the council of 50, whatever the thing is, drop the link in an email in messenger on something and, and to tweet it. Do people tweet anymore? You could do it that way too. Um, <laughs> the X things it. now, right? Yeah. The X things. And and then it'll be something else in, in, in a month. Um, so I have a question for you. This is purely speculative, but I but it, it is a thing that I wonder on occasion. Um, when you're talking about kind of like the succession things and Joseph as a fallen prophet, there are certain, um, you know, like factions in the 21st century that that uh, adhere to that belief. Um, different people that have sort of headed up that thing and said, you know what, Joseph was this until then, and now we need to return to the church of this, et cetera, right? Uh, other people who are like, 
uh, you know, uh, Joseph did all these things. And then he also did this. We don't really like that. And then Brigham Young sort of doubled down. And now finally we are coming around to where this whole thing would be a, a question that I just, and maybe I've given you no sort of, uh, uh ability to workshop this in your head. Um, but, but uh, it is a, a question that I'm curious about. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I'm going to limit your answering time. Okay. Wow. Is it possible it doesn't have to be 60 seconds. Uh, but is it possible that Joseph could have just done uh, like a thing wrong or like been? So I'm speaking specifically of polygamy and I know you don't want to do it, but like if he was like polygamy, yes. And just as, as a prophet, as a man kind of gets swept up into this thing and says polygamy. Yeah, you bet. And, and it was just not correct not right not doctrinally sound and other things went around it it do you feel like it's still it could, it could still be in a possible place where like that could that he could continue to still not be a fallen prophet be a prophet and prophet succession and in, in church today or does one denote that he would in, in fact be fallen well, that's a pretty tough question to answer in 60 seconds. Well, too bad. Um, <laughs> uh, we we just read what Brigham Young has to say about that. Sure. Right. Um, look, most of the time, people make arguments about doctrine, not on the basis of the veracity of the revelation, but on the basis of what they want to believe. Yeah. And so it's a pretty it's a pretty understandable thing that someone says, I love everything there is about Latter-day Saintism, but not the fact that they ever practiced polygamy. So that has to be a mistake. So therefore Joseph made a mistake with that. Well, what would be the evidence that you would have to demonstrate that? Right. Um, you certainly don't have a prophet that has said the church never should have practiced polygamy. Right. right? You don't have that. So any evidence that you would be taking on whether or not that revelation is from God would be, well, I don't really like it. And that's why it's not from God. And frankly, you know, Christianity and before that, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, the Bible is replete with things that are not popular, but are still the commandment of God. And yeah. so um, for me, I don't see a way of arguing as a historian. So just as a historian that Joseph didn't teach and practice plural marriage and that he did not uh, believe it was a revelation from God. Uh, he did. Uh, and so now someone can say, well, maybe he made a mistake with that. And I understand why someone really wants to believe that he made a mistake with that. There are several pretty large apostate groups from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints right now that have essentially their origin in the claim that Joseph never, ever, ever, ever taught polygamy, that mm -hmm. that was all invented later. Now, you'll notice that argument gets made over and over and over again, but there are no PhD historians making that argument. Mm. Why not? Well, because we aren't allowed to just pretend that the thousands of pieces of evidence that we have don't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but for people who really want to believe that, that's why some of these things have been so appealing to them. Right. I mean, uh, that, that, this idea that I want to believe in the book of Mormon and I want to believe that Joseph's a prophet, but polygamy is awful. And so that couldn't have come from Joseph. And so I know that dirty rascal Brigham Young made it up and it's all Brigham's fault. And the church is apostate from Brigham. 
well, you know, it, I understand why someone wants to believe that. At the same time, historians are unified across the board. I mean, historians who are Presbyterians, historians who are Latter-day Saints, historians who are atheists, all believe that there's overwhelming evidence that Joseph not only taught and practiced plural marriage, but that he absolutely believed that it was from God. So what would be our measure whereby we could determine that it was not? Yeah. And why why is that the doctrine that we would then make that kind of inquiry on? Well, we already know the answer. I make the inquiry on that doctrine and not, you know, the temple endowment because that doctrine bothers me and the temple endowment doesn't. Now that's very presentist of us because the reality is people were bothered by baptisms for the dead when it was first brought out. People left the church over it. Sure. People left the church over Doctrine and Covenants section 76. So um, I don't see a way as either a historian or a believer that I could make those things work out. Now, look, if President Nelson were to say, the Lord has revealed to me that this was and always was, you know, a, an error and a mistake, and that you know, he allowed it to go on, but he, but he shouldn't have, you know, that, that, that he allowed it to go on until we, we changed till we grew or something like, look, I'm going to follow whatever the prophet has to say. But if someone's making an argument that there's evidence of that hmm. from the side of the church, I, I, frankly, it's really the opposite. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of times people think that when declaration one was given, when president Woodruff announced that, that there was the same reaction that there was with official declaration two with official declaration two people are dancing in the streets and shouting for joy and rejoicing. Not everybody, obviously there's actually some apostate groups that actually broke away from the church in 1978 specifically because they refused to accept that revelation. But in general, people were overjoyed with it. That's just not really the case with official declaration one. Um, are there some people who are happy? I, I guess. But the reality is the biggest problem they have is many people saying, how can that possibly be? Because this was taught as a revelation for so long. And if you think about it, look, if you're born in 1850 in Salt Lake, you, you are already a, a 45, 46 year old man, 47. You're already well through. I mean, back then life expectancy is so low. I mean, heck, you're, you're probably almost dead. Mm. Uh, you, you've already lived your entire life defending your religion from the primary attack that's made by outsiders. And that is your religion is false because of the practice of polygamy. And you've made the argument your entire life. It is from God. And then the prophet says, we're not going to do it anymore. It, it, it's actually faith shattering for some people yeah. because it was so much a part of their culture. Now, again, you have as many different reactions as you do people. Um, but I, for me, not only do I not see evidence as a historian, I mean, so what can I say as a historian? Joseph Smith absolutely believes that the revelation he's had on plural marriage comes from God and pertains to the eternities. Mm -hmm. Now, if the question is, well, what if he's wrong about that? O okay, how do I know objectively that he's wrong? Just because I want him to be wrong? He certainly doesn't say that he's wrong. Brigham Young doesn't say that he's wrong. John Taylor doesn't say that he's wrong. I mean, the women who are married to him 
don't say that he's wrong. I mean, what, what do you do with someone who says like Lucy Walker, um, you know, Joseph asked me to marry him and I, I was very indignant and I told him absolutely not. It was entirely adverse to all of my education. And he told me I was entitled to receive an answer for myself and that I should pray about it. And I went and I prayed and I received an overwhelming witness that it was what God wanted me to do. Now, what do we do with that? Yeah. Do we just simply say, well, she's also lying. Just every, just everybody's lying. Yeah. Everybody's claiming that they had religious experiences they didn't have. Everybody's, you know, saying that they had angel. I mean, one woman who's talking about an angel appears to her and tells her that she's supposed to marry Joseph Smith. Well, she's obviously lying too. I mean, I mean, you, eventually you get to the point where it, it's not a very historically sound argument to make that every single person involved is just lying about everything. I mean, you know, we, we claim that we want to give these women their agency, but part of the way that we're doing it is by saying that they are liars about the fact that they had a spiritual experience to practice polygamy. I mean, it's not a very great way of proving someone having agency by telling people that they're a liar. I mean, so it's an incredibly difficult topic. And, and the reason why we don't cover it on my podcast, or I mean, we do cover it sometimes, but the reason why we don't we don't turn it into the the polygamy podcast with Garrett and Richard, which has a nice ring to it, is um, it would take years to even get your arms around part of the discussions around plural marriage. If you think about monogamous marriages today, how good an idea of, of monogamous marriages would you have if the only understanding of marriage you had was, you know, your great uncle's marriage? That's it. You'd know a lot about your great uncle's marriage, but that wouldn't tell you how everyone else's marriage is. Right. And marriage is incredibly personal. It's incredibly, it's, it's incredibly intimate. And so what happens when we talk about plural marriage is we tend to say, I know of this exception. This is the thing that bothers me. This, what happened with my great, great grandfather and grandmother. And because there's tens of thousands of people involved in plural marriages by the time that it's over, there are tens of thousands of stories. Hmm. And the, the story that we end up telling about it is entirely based on what we decide to use as a source. Are there women who are miserable in their plural marriages? Absolutely. Are there women who, who would rather their husband not take a second husband, but they, they feel like it's the right thing to do. So they say, yes, absolutely. Are there women who ask their husband to take a second wife? Yes. What yeah. do we do with that? Do we pretend that she's not really a person, that she doesn't really a marriage because, because it's not what we want to hear? I mean, the federal government was quite surprised. Many of them believed that when women received the right to vote in Utah territory and then exercised that right to vote before any other women in the United States, again, women in, in Utah have the right to vote half a century before the rest of the country. Half a century. I mean, it is a stunning thing. It, it, it predates... You know the 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 nineteenth uh, uh, amendment of the Constitution by 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 fifty years. Um, many people thought that now that women have the right to vote, you'll see all these church leaders that are serving in political offices, all these polygamists, they are going to be turned out of doors like that because we have half of the population that's women, and then we have ten percent of the population that's all anti-Mormon, and you put those two things together, and boom, that's the end of any church leader ever being elected. And what ends up happening? these same leaders are elected with even greater margins than before, which is the whole reason why the federal government then rescinded women's right to vote 
um, with the uh, the Edmonds Act in 1882. They took away women's right to vote that they already had, that they'd already been exercising. They took away their right to vote with the Edmonds-Tucker Act sorry, in 1887. So anyway, it, it, the reality is, while you have individual circumstances in which people are certainly having a horrible time, just like we do with monogamous marriages. Sure. I mean, ask our wives, am I right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, she's not in here right now. Yeah. Good thing. Because right? <laughs> I don't want her cat calling over the side like, I can tell you about terrible monogamous marriage. <laughs> but but th that's the reality. And, and you know what? We treat it differently. Like if you and I had a friend who came to us and said, you know, my 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 spouse cheated on me and we were married in the temple. None of us would say, well, well, you're obviously a liar because no one who's ever been married in the temple has ever cheated on their spouse. Right. And. And we we would we would show empathy, hopefully, and we would, you know, try to help them get through it. But we also wouldn't then start a campaign to say, you see, no one should ever get married in the temple. This when people get married in the temple, their spouse cheats on them. It just proves it. And yet that's exactly what we do when we talk about plural marriage. We take a single example and then we try to project it out to every other marriage. In monogamous marriages, we get it. We get it. Some marriages are terrible. And thankfully, in Utah, we like pioneered divorce in the United States, actually. We were Women were able to get a, a, a no-fault divorce initiated by them in Utah before they could anywhere else in the country. So when women wanted to leave these plural marriages, they could. And they were entitled to a third of the property when they did. Um, but uh, it, it, this, this idea is one that becomes so personal for us. And you know, I, I've tried on my podcast, I've said, okay, we're going to cover this one, th there's one controversial marriage of Joseph Smith. We're going to talk about that marriage. I'm going to go through all the sources for it. I'm going to go through all the things around, but just know I'm well aware there are many, many, many other marriages. I'm well aware we're going to only talk about this one to answer this question. And even though I give like a 10 minute preamble, my inbox is flooded with, well, why didn't you talk about this person? Sure. So that's a completely different case and a completely different time. So and and I, it's, uh, I just it's a person. I just checked. Uh, that oh, was longer oh, than 60 seconds, Garrett. Uh, I thought you experience. said 60 minutes. Oh, wow. That was, you know what? All that's right. why sources are so important. Ah, uh, Garrett, our time has run out. So I've got uh, the, an episode suggestion for you. And then the three okay. questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural. So the episode suggestion, I, I'm, I spend a lot of time uh, uh, looking about the church online. And I ran across something the other day that I'd never heard of. And so, uh, I, and I was fascinated because uh, by title, I was like, what in the world is this even talking about? And then I Googled it and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Is that where, so here's the episode suggestion. Okay. I had never heard of, and tell me if you have, TK Smoothies. Have you ever heard about this? No, I haven't. Okay. So, so by the title, I'm like, I, I, like, I couldn't identify by the title what it is. Okay. But it, it is the idea, the T and the K stands for Telestial Kingdom and uh, Smoothies. Oh, okay. A, applies I, now to, I know what you're talking about. I've just never heard that before. Yeah. The idea apply, of, applies of whether to, or not people have, uh, you know, whether or not people have, are gender specific in the next life if they don't go to the Celestial Kingdom. Correct. Yeah, so I, I've heard I had never heard that before. And then the smoothie, like, you know, like a, like a Barbie or a can. Right, you don't have the you yeah. don't have the parts that would be identified as far as that goes. 
Uh, I that would be to me a fascinating episode as to where that comes from. A deep dive, super nerdy. And as everyone has experienced, as you took your 60 seconds into 30 minutes, you right. do so it. I want to apologize to everyone listening to <laughs> the podcast, but also you should still probably donate to his podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, now, the three questions we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall, the first one I'll ask of you is, do you have a calling right now, sir? And if so, what is it? I wish I could make this a super short answer because I do not have a ward calling mm -hmm. because I have been tasked to do a special project for the church. Mm -hmm. And in order to... In order to maximize my time on it, mm -hmm. it was a, I was a called to be a missionary to do it. Right. So, so I'm serving as a, technically as a service missionary for the church. Right. Everybody knows that you're alluding to that you're helping Richard Turley write the Joseph the Prophet, I, but you I did am, not say that. I am not, I am working on a special project that is, but... <laughs> Going yeah. to be authored by Richard Turley well, was well. commissioned by the church, but you were not the one who said it. I don't know why. Why are we being coy? Of course you would be on that project. Well, I'm you just doing on the papers I'm, at the same time as I'm Richard doing Turley. Stuff. It, it's, <laughs> I'm not going to get you in trouble. You have not confirmed or denied it. It makes so much sense. So well, cute to think that you would be able to reiterate that that's not the project that you're doing. I, I think it's cool that they call that as a mission. Don't come well, tonight. Yeah, I don't. I actually had someone in my ward uh, send me the screenshot of the of you know the callings in the ward, other callings from the LDS tools, and it shows me as a missionary. And they said, uh, "What's going on with this?" <laughs> and you're Texas. like, "Can't comment. Can't cannot comment." That's cool though. I, I can't think of a better uh, mission assignment than to be working alongside Richard Turley. Yeah. People can go back. You'll find it in the show notes. We visited all. Uh, we had a, an episode called A Bunch of Richards, where we talk with uh, Richard Turley, Richard Osler, and Richard Bushman about their new book oh, projects. Awesome. And so that's awesome. we got in depth with that. So congratulations. That's cool. That's I can't wait for that project to come out. Uh, the second is if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Um, uh, that's that's just too easy gospel doctrine is is i mean it's it's great to be able to take the things you've learned work at work and then you know just kind of seamlessly transition right so gospel doctrine teacher is my ideal calling it's what i want most uh, and then the last question we ask everyone we ask you to interpret it however you may um but the question remains what is your favorite part of your faith wow uh, um i I would have to say that um, the fact that we have a living prophet, I mean, obviously Joseph Smith is is near and dear to me for all the time I've spent reading and studying everything he's written and, and said. And, um, and the aspect of Joseph Smith's teachings that are the most important to me are the doctrines of our pre-mortal life and that all of us will um, will be, will be saved in a, in a kingdom of heaven at some point. I mean, that it is, the part of my faith that resonates most with me and uh, I think demonstrates the, the loving nature of our Heavenly Father and the expansive nature of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that, that mercy is given well beyond places where it's deserved. And, and that's what I'm hoping for is mercy. So I'm, I, 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 uh, I would have to say if I had to pick, I mean, I know that's a little amorphous, but Joseph Smith's teachings on our 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 immortality of our soul and our eventual end of it is is my favorite aspect of the gospel. Well, Garrett, uh, people can find a link to the Standard of Truth podcast 
the link to the Joseph Smith papers and the online resources, all those available in the show notes if you want to learn a little bit more of that, as well as a link to the not mission call that he has working with Richard <laughs> Turley uh, about that. If you get in trouble, just tell him I got a big mouth. All right. Listen, I'm sorry. I it's it. There, there are so many people that it's it's been so obvious in their online presence and different things that they've said that I'm like, why why do we pretend? I don't know. Why, why, <laughs> why do we? Why? Oh, no. Garrett's working on it. We shouldn't tell anyone. It's like, of course, of course you would be. Of course you would be. Uh, uh we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.